The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. I'd like you to open your Bibles to the Epistle of Colossians. And once again, we are privileged to resume our study of the New Testament church. And this is a subject that is very near and dear to my heart. And I don't take the exposition of church doctrine to be trivial or of little consequence. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 5 that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, which leaves us with no mistake how our Lord feels about his church, that it is important enough that he would, the Messiah, Christ the Messiah, would die to build it. Paul also gave his life for the church uh, after his road to Damascus conversion in which he saw the brilliant light of the glory of God, Christ's glory, the Lord spoke to him and the Lord also told Ananias to restore Paul's sight when he was blinded by that light and to tell Paul that he was chosen to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul would greatly suffer for those instructions, for his preaching, and then he would die as a martyr for this ministry. See, the great work of the apostle was the mystery of the church revealed to him by Christ. And he makes this interesting comment to the Galatian church. In Galatians chapter 1, he wrote that he did not receive his commission because he conferred with any man, not because he met with the other apostles, but he received his commission to preach directly from Jesus Christ and that he was chosen before he was born for this mission. And then, of course, the work of all of the apostles was to affect the building plan that Christ gave for his church and to go throughout the Roman Empire preaching Christ and establishing many churches. This is what Paul did. He became the chief architect and uh, church organizer, the greatest that we have in the scriptures. And for this, he risked his life daily until finally he was put to death by the empire that he tried to save. Well, in our text today, he reflects upon this calling and his sufferings for the church. And he says here in Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 23 that he was a minister. And then in verse 24 that he suffered for them. He said it was for Christ's body, the church. And then in verse 25, he said he was made a minister by the dispensation of God. And as I just mentioned, all of the apostles were church men, all gave their lives in service to fulfilling Christ's plan to build the church. So it's undeniable that everything that is done in Christianity is done in service of the church and the promise that Christ made to build it. I'm thankful that I grew up under the ministry of my father, a preacher, who had the sense that the church must be paramount in our lives. He taught me this. It's for this reason that I may upset some of you in what I think is the proper order for our lives. 
Many times you will hear people say, it is God first, it is my family second, and the church is third, or maybe the church is even lower. I don't have that understanding. I believe it's God first, the church is second, and my family is third. That doesn't mean that my family is pushed down the list. It doesn't mean that my wife is pushed down somewhere in the list. No, it means that I, that I understand that Christ is one with the believer in the church. And that makes church and Christ much on the same plane. That family can't be right without a commitment to the Lord's church. You see, if we put the family above the church, then the church can be rejected in favor of family. And that's patently wrong. And whenever our families interfere with the church and we favor family, then we idolize family rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet that order is so often upset. People drop out of church when the church must discipline and deal with family members. But I'm thankful that I grew up with a different understanding of what the church means to Christ. And I don't apologize for devoting my life to God's church. It's a devotion that makes my relationship with my family the best that it can be. Because I know if I stand against my church and my family comes in conflict with the church, then my family will be harmed, not helped. But returning here to Paul... And the sense of importance of the church. You'll notice that, that he taught the present circumstances and difficulties of living for Christ amidst persecutions made it better, as he said in other places, not to marry if marriage hindered the work of Christ. But the apostles certainly didn't forbid marriage, but he's very clear that the family is not to interfere with the greater good, which is the commission of Christ to build the church. So that's my understanding from scriptural precedent about how important the church is. If Christ is one with the church, then to reject the church is to reject him. The New Testament church is presently God's plan for the world. Since Christ died for the church, it's impossible to imagine that any willy-nilly view of the church and of doctrine is acceptable. We can't go along and act as if just anybody who has a doctrine and has a place to meet and has some people that will follow is qualified to be a church. Our first lesson was on the nature of the true New Testament church, and it takes more than an idea, a wing, and a prayer to be a church. But that be as it may, we do want to make sure that our church does what Christ commanded. Christ commanded his ministry for the church, and that is, once again, our subject for today. So our text is Colossians chapter 1, which I have described as the Bible's most comprehensive instructions on what the church is called to do. Now, I would encourage you, if you haven't done it, to read this entire text. I'm not going to read it all today. We did read it in in the first part of the message uh, a couple of weeks ago. So when we started the mini-series on church ministry, we read this entire text. But I would like to point out a few verses which are kind of hard to separate because the passage is one long-flowing thought. So I'd like for us to look at verses 19 through 29, paying special attention to verse 23, verse 28, and verse 29. Colossians chapter 1 and 
verse number 19. For it pleased the Father that in him, that is in Jesus Christ, should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister." According to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Before we get into these verses uh, for the message today, what we want to talk about, uh, I, I want to remind you of what we've covered previously, the other points of our outline. We've learned that the ministry of the church is, first of all, the ministry of exaltation. That the chief purpose of what we do as a church is to glorify Christ. The man was created for God's glory. And this is brought home in a most striking way by verses 16 through 18. Where we learn that Christ created all things, all things that are visible and invisible, all thrones and dominions, all principalities and powers. All things were created by Christ and for Christ. We can easily understand when we say God created all, Christ created all. But what does it mean when it says that it was all created for him? Well, it must be because the creation does something for him. And none of what the church does for him can make him more than what he is because he is the creator. Christ created all things as a display of his infinite power and that he might have a creation that would honor this magnificent power that he had in creating the world. That's the reason for creation. Creation is for the glory of God, and all that does not glorify God must be destroyed. In the final consummation of the ages, God is determined to bring all creation back to its original purpose. That he will redeem the entire earth from the curse of sin, and then once again, all of the creation, including stubborn men, will sing the praises of God. Now, since Christ started the church, we can think of no other higher reason that it could exist except to glorify him. And so this is what we do in all that we do. In every sermon that we preach, in every song that we sing, every prayer 
that we pray, it's all to glorify Him. All of church ministry flows up into this one superior purpose. Christ must be glorified. And He will be glorified only by that which is perfect and is within His divine will. Now in verse number 20, the scripture says that Christ will reconcile all things to himself. And this we find is the second work of the church, which is the ministry of reconciliation. Christ will reconcile all to himself. He must, because as I just mentioned, in the final assize, everything that is not reconciled will be destroyed. Well, this, this passage is most interesting because it reveals two types of reconciliation. The first would be the reconciliation of the earth. That means the physical planet consisting of animal life and vegetative life. And then the other reconciliation is the removal of the enmity that exists between man and God. As we have discussed, the scriptures teach that man is the enemy of God. The highest order of the creation is man, and this is because man was created in the image of God, but because of Adam's fall, the highest order of the creation was separated from him, and we became the enemies of God. The Bible describes that as enmity, a word that means hostility. There is hostility between us and our maker, so there is no peace between us. The church, then, is committed to this ministry of reconciliation so that we can show people how they can be reconciled to God, to be at peace with God. Now, in the case of that first reconciliation, we have no part. The reconciliation of the earth and of creatures is waiting to happen. Romans says that the whole creation groans while it waits for its redemption. All creation waits for God to lift the curse that was caused by the fall of man. God cursed everything. The fallout of the fall was that he cursed the ground and caused it to bring forth thorns and thistles. He cursed the animal kingdom and animals became predator and prey. This part of the curse will be lifted during the millennial reign and this is when Christ comes to rule the earth in perfect peace. And then this earth will once again be a virtual garden of Eden as the ground brings forth crops abundantly. There will be no adversity in the animal kingdom, as the scriptures say that the lion will lay down with the lamb, that the lion will eat straw like an ox. It says that children won't be afraid of poisonous snakes. Their venom will have no harm. So God will take all of that conflict away. But there's nothing that we can do to assist God in that type of reconciliation. As he changes the world back to the state it was in before, before the fall, we have no part in that. That's all the Creator's work. That's something that happens in the future. How far in the future, we don't know. We just look for it as a part of the promise that God made to his people. But then that other reconciliation... God has chosen that we do have a part. He gave us a part. And part of the reason for the existence of the church is that God uses her to facilitate the reconciliation of fallen humans to him. Now, he could have done that alone, just as he will do with the creation. But instead, he chose to give us as his church a stewardship of ministry, this ministry, that helps accomplish it. And this must be done because all that remains hostile to him will be destroyed. 
This is why we engage in the ministry of this reconciliation so that people don't die and go to hell. They need to know that God is going to destroy everyone who's not reconciled to him. Christ will be glorified and he can't be glorified by anything that opposes him. So he uses us as instruments to help accomplish his glory in the salvation of those that are made in his image. And Christ achieves his greatest glory when people recognize him as the righteous and holy God. This then brought us to the third ministry of the church, and that is how this reconciliation is accomplished. How is it done? Well, it is achieved, thirdly, by the ministry of salvation. Reconciliation is achieved through the sacrifice of the precious blood of Christ. It is this blood that cleanses us from sin. And so the ministry of salvation is the preaching of the cross where Christ died for sin. It is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ was crucified, that he was buried, and that he arose from the dead. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And this is because he has determined to save people from all over the world out of every nation of this earth. Every kindred, every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be represented by the redeemed in heaven. The ministry of salvation is the church preaching this gospel to all of these different people. It's the presentation of the real Christ and the way that he provided salvation for us. So all of those who just decide to get a crowd together, rent some space, and start a church, they are not the true churches of Christ unless they have his authority and his gospel. And regrettably, the world lies in wickedness today because most of the groups that are out there preach a false gospel. They preach a gospel of sacraments, of penance, of rosaries, of confession, all sorts of religious works that will never reconcile anyone to God. And then the world is filled with Satan's false teachers that preach for greedy gain, monetary gain. Well, the church has been commissioned with preaching the right gospel. People can be saved in only one way. And that is by God's grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ alone. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Only Jesus can save, and only Jesus will save. We can't help him to save anybody except by witnessing the gospel that he uses to convict their hearts. Neither we nor those that we try to reach can help Christ save them. But we can tell them that he demands repentance from their sins and faith in his sacrifice. Well, that's introduction. And it brings me to the last ministry that I want to discuss with you. That Christ has called us to a ministry of exaltation, to a ministry of reconciliation, a ministry of salvation. And then finally, the ministry of edification. The ministry of edification. This is a, edification is, is a great word. In its development from Latin, it came to be used mostly in a religious context. Its meaning means to build up spiritually, to improve spiritually. The original word meant to build or to establish. And this is interesting, in fact, if you're interested in such things, that the church connection to this word is, of course, that Christ promised that he would build his church. And it doesn't mean that Christ was 
simply going to start a church, but that the building of his church would be continuous. When people are are saved, they are to be baptized and brought into the membership of the church. I don't see that as an optional choice. There are no unattached believers in the New Testament. They were members of the church, just like the one that we're reading about here in Colossae. And the apostles, when they went out to preach, they would gather their converts and, and they would organize them into churches so they could learn to do the same as the apostles did. They were taught to do the ministry of these very things that we are discussing today. Now, you'll notice in our text in verse 28, Paul said that he preached in the wisdom of God so that he could present his converts perfect in Christ Jesus. Verse 28, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Perfect. That's a word that means to make them mature believers. In verse number 23, it's to establish them in the faith so they are rooted and grounded in the faith. That's their salvation. But then the commission that God gave us has another part to it, that we are to disciple people. We are to teach them to obey all things that Christ commanded. Why do we and why does Christ want them to obey all things that he commanded? Well, it's very simple. So they can glorify God in their lives. They learn to deal with their sin, to get sin out. They learn to be holy. And holiness is the way that Christ is glorified. We must be sanctified and we must be filled with the Holy Spirit to bring Christ the greatest glory. This is why the New Testament is so concerned with the way that you live your life. That's why we have that Romans 12 chapter to show you what kind of people you are to be. You are to be holy. Now, we already discussed in the first part how the church exalts Christ by being the pillar and ground of the truth. And what does pillar and ground refer to? Well, that would refer to buildings and foundations. We uphold the truth of the word. And as Paul says, we ground people in the truth so that they won't be blown away by every wind of doctrine. Our goal is to teach you what the Bible says, what you are to believe, so that when you hear something is not what the Bible teaches, you can identify it. You know what it is, and you know to turn away from it. In Ephesians chapter 4, this is what Paul says, beginning in verse 11, And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Notice that, edifying. The edification, that's building up the church, the body of Christ. Then he goes on in verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. That's what false preachers do. They lie in wait to deceive you. And it goes on all the time across America in places that have church over the door. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head even Christ. So it's our job to teach everything that's in the Word. It's our job to establish new Christians 
in the faith. This is the ministry of edification. And so there must be a church raised in every generation that holds to the true doctrines of Christ. Christ's church is preserved through faithful pastors and teachers that stick to the truths of God's word. And this is how the church survived for 20 centuries. In every generation, faithful men and women taught the true doctrine of regeneration. And we taught that the doctrines of the word, the principles of the word to the next generation. And Paul related this generational edification to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 2 where he says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So this is our ongoing work. I teach you, you teach somebody else. And we keep the church going until Christ comes. That's how it continues. I don't want to leave the ladies out. We can't leave you out of the ministry of edification. It was Timothy's mother and grandmother that helped him to begin his journey of faith. The Bible describes the woman's role in the church in Paul's letter to Titus. Now, you might want to turn there and you can mark this in your Bible. This is a very clear scripture about what is expected from women in the church. Now, we won't deal with such things as women preaching and those kinds of things, not in this text. Uh, maybe we can deal with that at another time. But here we do see what women are supposed to do. Titus 2, verses 3 through 5. It says, The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Now there, of course, he's dealing with the manner of their lives, uh, holy lives. You can't teach anybody how to be holy if you aren't. That they may teach the young women to be sober. To love their husbands, to love their children, teach the young women. Now we're talking about generational edification. To love their children, love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Verse number five, you might want to just cut that out of your Bible. Uh, That's not liked too well, is it? Generational edification. That's one of the reasons that we need to be concerned about holding on to our young people. How faithful have you been as parents to raise your children in the truth and to make sure that they're in the church where they can hear and learn from God's word? Now, there are many parents that fail at this. You can look at young people and you can see it. But how will we preserve the doctrines of the faith if people are not brought to the place where the truth is taught? Who will continue this ministry beyond you and me? And we wonder about this. Why aren't there more young men that surrender to the ministry? Why aren't there more young ladies that are chaste and holy and they look to serve Christ by marrying pastors and missionaries? And if not that, if not marrying preachers... Why don't we see young ladies digging down and establishing new families that help to carry on the doctrines of the faith? See, the church is built from families. And this is the reason that I don't diminish family in my statements, that God is first, that 
the church is second and the family is third. Because what I actually believe about this is the family rises to the third, second level there, right between, uh, behind God the Father, if we consider that the church is made of families. So if, if Christ should tarry his coming, we must prepare the next generation for the work of the ministry. Now, the ministry of the church is edification, that as we prepare soldiers, and another metaphor here, we prepare soldiers to enter the warfare of Christ. The church must invade enemy territory. It must be equipped to fight constant battles with a persistent enemy. So if you wonder, why does Pastor Smith preach so many doctrinal sermons? And I don't mess around with fuzzy feel-good stories. This is the reason. We need disciplined soldiers who can withstand the attacks of Satan. And this is why Paul said, you must be rooted and grounded and settled in the faith. You don't need me to tell you stories. You need me to tell you what the Word of God says. That we do not, do not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. I like this quote from the now deceased Pastor Buell Kazee. I knew him when I was very young. He wrote a great book entitled The Church and the Ordinances. And he said, from the very nature of the function of the church of Christ, it is inevitable that many saved people will not be active or enrolled in one. A true church is a disciplined body bound to a doctrine. It's not a place for believers to lounge and casually identify themselves as citizens of heaven. It's a body of activity with serious responsibilities and a message that lost men need desperately. As the habitation of God here in this world, through the person of the Spirit, a church becomes the place from which and the body through which the Most High God speaks His message to a lost world. It's charged with the responsibility of carrying the message of life. As long as there is preaching to be done, the churches have work to do. When the preaching is all done, the mission of the church is over. A church is first and last a preaching institution. Do you understand that? The church is first and last a preaching institution. Do you see why we emphasize the pulpit ministry of Berean? We are first and last a preaching institution. And yet, folks, we're living in a time, we are living in a time when people go to churches looking for everything but the preaching. Everything but what they hear from the Word of God, the exposition of Scripture, everything but. And so churches are selected on children's ministries. They are selected on youth activities and probably most today on a music program. And it, it, it seems hardly anyone evaluates the truths and the depths of expositions of the Word through the preaching. I read something interesting just a few weeks ago. An article on preaching said that preachers... Rarely listen to preaching anymore. And I wonder, how is it that we are going to exposit the Word of God without learning ourselves and, and just mining the depths of God's Word? Preaching exhorts and convicts, and most Christians do not want convicting exhortation that encourages them to become a part of helping to edify other believers. And yet, yet, this is unmistakable. It is the charge that is given in the Great Commission. It is foundational to the teachings of Paul and the other apostles. Well, we've talked about the salvation of the soul. The ministry of the church is the salvation of souls. But the ministry of the church is also the salvation of lives. 
And that's what edification is. It's the salvation of lives to be used in the service of the Lord. Jesus spoke of the salvation of lives in Matthew 16. And we would note that he comes immediately following what he had to say about the church as he introduced the church to the apostles. In Matthew 16, verse 24, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Christians must follow Christ to the cross. This means that we must give up all for Christ as he gave up all for the salvation of our souls. We must nail our ambitions and our selfishness to the cross and become that living sacrifice that is demanded in what we read in Romans 12, verse number 1. A living sacrifice. That's what we must do. We must help to keep people on the straight and narrow. We train them to be used in God's service. Well, there are different ways that Christians can be edified through the church. There are things that the church provides that you don't get in any other place. So as we conclude the message today, I want to quickly give you some things that the church provides for your edification. The first and foremost of these, I think you expect, you expect me to say, is the teaching of the word. We've already discussed this. You can't get proper grounding in the faith except through the teaching that comes in a true church. I know there's some who say, well, what about Bible colleges? Can't we just substitute that? What about seminaries? Well, they're, they're only useful as they are connected to the church. That's where they would get their authority. They have no authority for teaching except it comes through the church. So you include them for teaching only as they are authorized by Christ's church, individual churches. But for those that can't go to a good Bible college, I mean, the right kind of a Bible college, the rubber meets the road of gospel preaching Right here, right in this place. If you listen, and if you ask questions, and you stay, and you're faithful, and you attend, and you apply yourself, you can get what you need here in the church. The Lord's churches survived without Bible colleges for a long, long, long time. Instruction came through the church because the church is the only place to go. This is what God intended. This is what God intended the church to do. To be the preaching, teaching institution of his people. Now, admittedly, we have a big problem today finding a church that still preaches straight from the Bible. When you go to churches, many times they don't even open a Bible. There's no text taken from the Bible or it's quickly abandoned when there is. There's no doctrinal truth that's being taught. But that's what we're supposed to do. There's nothing wrong with a good Bible college, but it will never replace the Lord's church. Now, of course, it's not true that you'll get what you need if you attend a church where the best that the pastor can do is pick up the newspaper and read articles to you or or to discuss with you the morals of a movie that he just saw or the latest novel that he just read. If a pastor is striving to be culturally relevant instead of scripturally relevant, then you're not going to get what you need. You need the Bible. 
So you choose a church where the pastor teaches and preaches from the Bible and is not afraid to tackle any subject that the Bible brings before us. Doesn't the Word of God say all Scripture is profitable? So you get somebody who preaches it all. All the way from Genesis to Revelation, from the dust of the ground to the glories of heaven, from the depravity of man to the damnation of hell, to the justification of sinners by Christ, to the salvation of the soul. Get it all. You need it all. Well, what else do you get from the church? Well, the second thing is you get the ordinances. You get the ordinances of the faith. First, you get baptism from the church. We're going to study the ordinances in the next messages, so I'm just, I'll just be very brief here. Only the church has the authority to baptize. Now, since baptism is the first command to be obeyed for a new convert, we must obey this command before proceeding to the other commands. The only place you get baptism is from the church. The Great Commission also supplies the mandate for baptism. It says, go, teach, and baptize. That's the commission given to the church. Christ's people are edified through baptism because baptism is a step of faith. We never expect a person to grow significantly if they'll not be baptized. Baptism is identification with Christ. It brings us into the church. It's how we identify with him. And without submission to baptism and being part of the church, we don't have the kind of commitment that we need. Baptism is a commitment. Now, understand, and we'll get this when we, when we study the subject of baptism starting, uh, it'll be in the message next week. Baptism has nothing to do with saving you, but it has everything to do with how you're going to live out your Christian life and faithfulness to the Lord. The first command to, be ba- uh, to obey in the gospel is baptism. Trust in Jesus Christ and be baptized. I remember when we supported some mission works in India several years ago, we would get letters about thousands upon thousands that were saved in gospel ministry, but only a few of them, a few of the people were baptized. I questioned that. Uh, why? Why are there so many supposed professions of faith, but nobody's being baptized? Well, one missionary said it was because of lack of water. I, I discussed that with a young man. You remember uh, Joe Francis, who's was from India, and I asked him about that. I said, the missionaries over in India are saying they can't baptize all these people because there's no water. And he looked at me, what? No water? What do you mean, no water? That was their excuse. But I thought about that, and I I realized, of course, that Jesus walked 60 miles, walked 60 miles to be baptized by John the Baptist. Do you think in this day and age we couldn't put somebody in a car and drive 60 miles to get some water if we had to? Philip found water in the desert. We can find water to baptize people. Then, then there's the other ordinance. The church is the only place for the administration of the Lord's Supper. I'll have an involved treatment of this later as well, but you should be a member of the church to receive the communion. Does the Lord's Supper edify us? Well, I think if you were to ask any person who comes to the communion, who sits and listens and watches and sees silently as the bread is broken, as the cup is poured, and as we pray and people partake. There's something that comes over you with that. I'm not saying there's any miraculous thing that happens in in the taking of the Lord's Supper, but I'm sure of this, I know this, you can feel the Holy Spirit in it. You can't get that any place but in the church. 
Does, does that turn your heart to think of Christ when you take of the communion? Does it bring you closer to the Lord? And I think if it doesn't, then you might not be saved. God's people are edified by the ordinances and you can't get them in any other place than his church. Thirdly, is the work of evangelism. Again, we just touch on it briefly because we covered it. Only the church is authorized to evangelize. You are edified by evangelism because there is nothing that brings you closer to the Lord than reproduction. Make converts. Obey the commission. See what that will do with your spiritual life. Now, perhaps one of the reasons that we struggle so much with sin is that many people don't live in a way that makes their evangelism effective. We couldn't witness to anybody, not if they've looked at your life to see what you do and how you act. How would you ever witness to them and tell them how great it is to know Jesus Christ and what a change he's made in your life if there's no demonstration of a change in your life? A holy life works hand in hand with the desire to evangelism, evangelize. Evangelism makes you closer to the Lord and the closeness makes you even more sanctified, more holy. So you can't get Christ close to Christ without holiness. Then how else are you edified in the church? Well, the fourth thing would be a life of commitment. Membership in the church will edify and help you grow because you are committed to the work of Christ. Quite honestly, I have never, never seen anything accomplished by stay-at-home Christians. Where is the fruit of that? Lack of commitment fuels lack of desire. In these past couple of years, all the pandemic issues, churches shut down and all that, who can testify that hearts grow cold when we aren't in fellowship with God's people, making that commitment? Commitment also involves responsibility. When you know others count on you, when you have a work to do in the church that's vital to the ministry, doesn't that sense of belonging help you? People depend on me. And when you see the results of the labor that you put in, doesn't that spur you to do even greater things for God? You know, there's much to be said for accountability. Christ makes you, church makes you accountable. Your commitment makes you accountable. Your commitment will actually place you under scrutiny and subjects you to discipline. That sounds harsh. This one simply means learning. It subjects you to discipline, and that is exactly what a born-again Christian truly desires. Listen to what Peter says, Second Peter 1, verse 4. He says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the, the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged. From his old sins. There needs to be. There must be development in your Christian life. There must be. And it comes through the responsibility. Dedicating, committing to the responsibilities of the church. So you get all this from the church. The church helps you build the qualities of faith that Peter mentions in this passage. Well, finally, lastly, what do we get from the church? We get fellowship with the saints. 
fellowship. God's people are edified by fellowship with others of the same faith. Encouragement comes from that fellowship with believers. Who do you draw strength from when you're hurting? Who's there in the loss of a loved one? Who has compassion when you need help? Who will partner with you in prayer when you need someone to plead with God for you? You know, it's interesting that there are people outside of the church, people that we don't even know, who sometimes, people that have never stepped foot in the church, who will sometimes send prayer requests. Will you pray for me? They sense that there is help in the church even though they're not a part of it. How much more should you know that? How much? Does it help your spiritual growth to know others are watching for you? That's the work of the church. We have a ministry of edification we cannot afford to be without. And, and, and you know something? You might come to church and you feel that everyone has failed you. You're just not getting from the church what you think you should. Whenever you feel like that, stop and think about what you're giving to others. Who have you helped? See, this is your job too. It's not just to get from the church, but to give. You'll be blessed. You'll be edified if you help others, no matter if you get anything in return. And the truth of the matter is, it is not possible for you to get nothing in return because if you don't get it from people, you get the reward from the Lord. That's the most important. I remember several years ago, I talked with some former members of our church. They left the church and they said, we have a problem with the community of the church. They thought that they were shortchanged with care and concern. Well, I apologize to anyone if we haven't treated them well. But some people spend all their time trying to suck everything they can out of the church without giving anything in return. Did you know the scriptures are chock full of commands to give, but very few about receiving? We think about the Apostle Paul and his ministry. Who is more needful than Paul? What he went through and the hardships that he faced... And yet he encouraged the Ephesian elders with these words. The last time that he saw them, he said this, And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. That's the same words we had for edification. And gives you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Now listen, he says, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, yourselves know that these hands have ministered under my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring, you ought to support the weak. And to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. So Paul asked nothing to demonstrate that giving to others is greater than receiving from others. People that are selfless, and engaged in helping others, these are the hardest people to offend. So I'm sorry if anyone feels the church hasn't done them right. But please remember, each of us is here to serve, not to be served. That's your job. And if church means to you that you must get something in return before you'll help someone else, then you need to go back to the cross. You need to look at Jesus. 
Did he receive anything from us before he gave all for us? You know the answer to that. Did you nail yourself to the cross? Do that. Do that and see if you aren't edified. Exaltation, reconciliation, salvation, edification. This is the ministry of the church. We are so privileged to be a part of God's plan for men and women, boys and girls in this present age. To think that God would use unworthy sinners like us and use us for such high and holy purposes. Isn't God's grace amazing? Utterly amazing. Are we overburdened if we must serve Christ? The answer is no. We are blessed to be in the service of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So yes, God's grace is utterly amazing. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now thanking you for your word and what we have learned here today. Help us that we might magnify Jesus Christ. Help us that we might show people how they can have peace with you, reconciled. Help us to speak of salvation, giving the gospel to others. And then this ministry of edification, building up the body of Christ, the teaching of the word and that stewardship that you've given us to teach the next generation how they can be saved and how your church can go forward preaching the gospel of Christ until you come again. This is our ministry. We are so privileged to be a part of your church. Speak to our hearts today, Lord. We pray for people that aren't saved. We pray for salvation in Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit convict them of their sins and bring them to you today. And then for our members and others that are here with us today, I I just pray that we all see how critical church is to our lives. We can't be what we need to be without the church. Thank you, Lord, for all these things. We praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.